Haynes of uh, Yale University. Uh, Christine Haynes is a Robert F. and Patricia R. Weiss Professor of Religious Studies in Classical Judaic uh, at Yale University. Uh, she's really uh, a worldwide reputation as one of the leading scholars uh, in the Classical Judaic and Rabbinic uh, Judaism and uh, is really widely demand as a speaker. So I want to take some time and we're pleased to have Christy Hayes speak to us on what's the going about the going world. Thank you so much for coming and thank you to Larry and to the other members of the Department of Jewish Studies for this invitation. I'm absolutely delighted to be delivering the first uh, or the inaugural Flag Family uh, lecture to you. Um, the lecture that I've prepared follows the main argument of my recently completed book, which should appear any day now. Um, and it's a book that explores the concept of divine law. Or to be more precise, the book labors to make sense of the explosive confrontation between radically diverse conceptions of divine law in the Mediterranean and Near Eastern world in the thousand year period prior to the rise of Islam. Now, this is a long book with a lot of big ideas, and unfortunately, in 50 minutes, I'm going to have to be very schematic and not terribly nuanced, and I know that. Um, and almost everything that I'm about to say but has a footnote that points to a text that says something a little different <laughs> um, or that is contested in rabbinic literature. And that's one of the things I try to do in the book is to show that the picture I'm painting is in broad strokes, I think, an accurate one, but it's also a contested one um, within all of the traditions I'll be talking about. The handout that you have really has two parts. The first two pages are um, really for you to keep score, uh, just to kind of know where I am in the lecture. So it's sort of a brief outline of the lecture as a whole. Um, and then the primary sources begin on um, page three, four, five, six. So I'll be touching on those sources. So that's so we'll sometimes be flipping back and forth. Okay. Um, so divine law refers to the idea that the norms that guide human action are somehow rooted in the divine realm. And it's a concept that's common to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And there's nothing inevitable about this idea. Right? Chinese civilization, I've been told by experts, I am not one, but I've been told that they don't really think of law as being connected with the divine, it's connected with the elders and various other things, but not necessarily the divine. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, the gods are said to authorize kings, give them the, the uh, principles of justice by which they then formulate their laws, but the laws themselves are written by the kings and bear their names. So a robust notion of divine law in which divinity applies in some way, in some manner, to the law itself, that first appears in ancient Greece and in biblical Israel um, roughly the same period of time. And so here's where our story begins, and this is why it begins. The Greek and the biblical conceptions of the divine are radically different. And to the extent that they conceive of the divine in radically different ways, then their notion of divine law will diverge dramatically. And after Alexander's conquest of the eastern end of the Mediterranean, these two conceptions of divine law collide, and they create a cognitive dissonance. Uh, a cognitive dissonance that has serious consequences for those who felt compelled to negotiate the claims of both traditions. And for the most part, those people were ancient Jews. Those are the ones I'm interested in anyway. So what does it mean to say that law is divine? What constitutes law's divinity? When we say that law is divine, what claims are we making on its behalf? What traits do we suppose a law possesses when we refer to it as divine? What is it about divine law that is so divine? Well, in much Greek thought, divine law is divine because it expresses the profound structures of a permanent natural order. A natural law. 
Uh, I won't go into the pre-Socratics or Heraclitus or others. I'm going to just jump right to the Stoics. Again, it's a very schematic account in the book. There's an entire chapter that goes through 10 different discourses of law, divine law, natural law, human law, and so on. And I'm being very schematic here, so please forgive me. We're going to focus on the Stoics, although they aren't the only people we could be talking about. But the Stoics were the first to refer to the natural law, which they understood to be the rational order, or logos, of the universe as divine law, theos nomos. Although the word doesn't appear very often. For the Stoics, God was not distinct from nature. God was nature, nature was divine, and therefore the rational order or the eternal reason or logos of nature is none other than the eternal reason of God in the mind of God. So to say that law is divine is to say that it is the eternal reason, rational order of nature or the eternal mind of God. Cicero gives us the classic account of the Stoic theory of natural or divine law. And here's where you might want to be looking then at text one. For Cicero, there's only one true law, namely right reason, which is in accordance with nature, it's in agreement with nature. It applies to all men, it's diffused over everyone, it's universal. It's consistent, unchanging in other words, and it's everlasting or eternal. So it's rational, these are the characteristics it has, by definition, inherently. It is rational, it is true, it is universal, it is eternal and unchanging, static in its perfection. And very important for the Stoics, it's also unwritten. It isn't formulated in human language, in words or in statements. It is the rational order by which the world or nature operates. To invalidate it by human laws, human legislation, that's never right, never morally right nor is it permissible to try to restrict or annul it. It kind of makes no sense, in fact, that you wouldn't pass a law against the law of gravity. Its authority lies in the qualities that it inherently possesses. It's rational, it's true, universal, and immutable. Not because it's backed by the coercive power of a legislator. Now, when it comes to law, Greco-Roman thought in general assumes an important dichotomy, and here I'm moving down to number two on your, your, your handouts um, chart of, of the lecture. Um, Greco-Roman thought assumes an important dichotomy. On the one hand, there is natural or divine law, and on the other hand, separate and very different, in fact, um, in, in the inverse opposite of divine law or natural law, is human positive law, which is not in a genuine sense law, Cicero says. We just have to call it law because we don't have a better word. But positive law, that is to say, the laws that humans posit, positive law consists of concrete rules and prohibitions that are posited by human beings, delivered in written form, in words and sentences that are enforced by coercive authority. Positive law is not universal. It's created by persons for a particular city or state. It is subject to change and evolution over time. It doesn't necessarily reflect truth or natural reality. So Greco-Roman discourses of positive law are ambivalent to negative. In Plato's Republic and in his work, The Laws, the only true and virtuous regime is a regime of direct rule by the gods, which occurred in a past mythological age. But we now live in a fallen state. No more is there direct rule by the gods. The next best thing would be rule by philosopher kings. Their rational capacity is perfected to such a degree that they, like the gods, perceive eternal truths, they perceive the logos, but it's really hard to find such great philosophers to serve as rulers. Plato notes this in the laws. And if you look at text two, you'll see what Plato says about this. I grant you readily, that's on page three, text two, Plato from the laws. I grant you readily 
that if ever, by God's mercy, a man were born with the capacity to attain to this perception, the perception of being unaware of the truth, because he's so rationally perfect, he would need no laws to govern him. Right? They're mutually exclusive. No law or ordinance, whatever, has the right to sovereignty over true knowledge. But as such as things are, such insight is nowhere to be met with, except in faint vestiges. And so we have to choose the second best, ordinances and law. So lacking divine or rationally perfect rulers, we're forced to make do with rule by laws instead of philosophers. And that's the second best option. The law, he says, strives to be an imitation of the truth, but it is a resented necessity that takes place under the sign of shame. Uh, indeed, the rule of law represents a failure of education altogether, because according to Plato, the truly rational individual with a grasp of eternal verities would not need laws. Law is uh, not superior to knowledge. And since few are truly knowledgeable, truly rationally perfect, we must choose the second best option of rule by law. Now for Plato, the imperfection of the positive laws that govern us lies in their generality and their inflexibility. Once they're written down, they become quite inflexible. And that means they are unable to adjust as needed to ensure justice in all of the widely varying conditions of human life. You see this in text three. Law could never accurately, means human positive laws, could never accurately embrace what is best and most just for all at the same time, and so prescribe what is best for the dissimilarities among human beings and their actions. And the fact that practically nothing in human affairs ever remains stable prevent any sort of expertise whatsoever from making any simple decision in any sphere that covers all cases and will last for all time. Because no written human law can anticipate all of the circumstances of specific cases, its fixed inflexible quality is a serious flaw. It would be best to be ruled not by a static written law, but by sages and wise experts who can discern justice in individual cases, like a ship's captain who makes adjustments and decisions on the spot in response to prevailing conditions. We see that in text four. I'll read that, but it describes um, the ship's captain who's making adjustments and not following a fixed rule. That would be the ruin of the ship and the company of men with it. Other Greek thinkers praise the living law, nomos and psychos, of kings as more flexible than the dead letter of written codes. These are the metaphors that are used for written law. It's dead. Um, for Aristotle, the legislator who cleaves to written law and precedent without employing phronesis. For Aristotle, that means practical wisdom. Plato uses the term differently, but for Aristotle, phronesis is practical wisdom, good judgment, um, to make the proper adjustments in individual cases. Um, one who does that, who cleaves to the written law instead of using phronesis, is, is not a good ruler. In the Nicomachean Ethics, um, and you'll see this in text 5, Aristotle discusses the need for the equitable correction of the law in individual cases, precisely because it's impossible for humans to lay down a law that will in all cases be just. Right? The equitable is just, but not the legally just. Right? We, we perform equity. Um, when we correct the formal law, what the formal technical law ought to be, we make corrections according to circumstances. And the reason we have to do that is that all law is, you know, has to be written in a universal way about some things, though it is not possible to make a universal statement that will always be correct. And in those cases in which it is necessary to speak universally but not possible to do so correctly, then the law needs to be adjusted. It's in the nature of human affairs that we can't make universal statements that will always be correct. So inflexible, inflexibility of law is a function of its imperfection. Right? 
Um, so, for both Plato and Aristotle, even the best human law must recognize its imperfection and take into account shifting human needs and circumstances if it is to deliver justice in individual circumstances, but that adjustment is because of its imperfection. Ambivalence about human law is found also in Protagoras's great speech, that's a dialogue by Plato, Protagoras, as well as in Plato's work, The Laws, where the following claim is made. Although human law provides an important rescue from the brutish state of nature, right, at least it makes us act with a certain amount of civility towards one another, it's deficient because it doesn't help us achieve the full realization of human virtue and justice. Law can only make us behave ourselves, if you will, through coercion, but it doesn't inspire in us the virtuous behavior that comes only through rational perfection and knowledge of eternal truths. Law, Plato says, is itself in need of a savior, so carry on, in the form of logos, reason, in order to adjust its general and incomplete rulings to particular circumstances. And again, those adjustments are needed because human law is imperfect and can't cover or anticipate all eventualities. So I, I've raced through one and two on the first page um, of your handout. And just to sum that up, for ancient Greeks, right, an ancient Greek would have answered the question, what's divine about divine law? By asserting that divine law is divine by virtue of certain qualities inherent in it, that it inherently possesses, first and foremost, its rationality, but that entails its truth value, its universality, and its immutability, its static, unchanging character. Those are all qualities that human law, in contrast, absolutely does not, and by definition, does not possess in an inherent way. By contrast, according to biblical tradition, the law is divine, not by virtue of any inherent qualities, but because it emanates from a God who is master of history. It's a very different idea of divine law. Biblical divine law is divine because it's authored by, it is the command of, a deity. It's not the expression of an impersonal, natural uh, law or reason, rational order of the cosmos. Rather, it's not, that's not the primary way in which it is represented in the biblical narrative. It is, um, the, uh, it is rather the divine um, uh, legislation, rules, and commandments that emanate from a divine being and express that deity's will. Right? It's not a reflection of an impersonal reason. It's the um, expression of a personal will of a deity. So its authority is grounded not in its rational character, but in its commanding source. Exodus 24, 3 and 4. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of God and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things that God has commanded we will do. And Moses then wrote down all the commands of God. This divine law is written. It's not a rational order. It's concrete legislation formulated in words. It's also designed for a particular community. Indeed, when it's given, God says he's giving it to them in order to separate them out from the other nations, to make them different. And because the divine law is a positive enactment of a sovereign will, it's changeable because that which stems from an act of will can be changed by a subsequent act of will. And certainly in the biblical narrative, we see that new rules and ordinances are issued as long as there's continued access to God's will. In biblical times, according to the narrative, that access is achieved by means of ongoing revelation. Um, Moses consults God directly to ascertain his will in four legal cases where he doesn't know what to do. Um, and later, according to Deuteronomy 17, um, this uh, access to the divine will happens by consulting with God's representative authorities, right? going to Jerusalem and presenting a case before the Lord, if you will, to those who represent his authority. 
So variability of the divinely given law in response to the shifting circumstances of human life is part and parcel of the biblical divine law tradition, and quite explicitly so. Deuteronomy 13 says, now that you are entering the land, you will no longer give sacrifices in any place you wish. You will only give sacrifices in one central location where I cause my name to dwell. Deuteronomy 17 says, when you enter the land, it may occur to you that you want a king. And if you do, these are the rules that will apply. New situation, new rules. Numbers 27, the legal claim of the daughters of Zalapachad, um, causes God to say, you know, you're right. I really should have thought of that. When there are no sons, maybe the daughters should inherit. Moses, make a note of that. Right? He says, write that down so that from now on, it will be the case. New situation, new rules. It's true, and this is the part that I'm going to have to not nuance at all, but believe me, there's a whole section in the book that talks about this. It's true that this isn't the only discourse about divine law in the biblical text. Um, there are some passages that connect the Torah of God to wisdom or instruction. Um, observing the Torah, it says in Deuteronomy, will make Israel wise. And I do talk about that connection. But it remains true that by far and away, the dominant biblical discourse about divine law maintains that the divine law expresses not so much divine reason, but divine will. And that's certainly the basis for its claim on our fidelity is that it is the, the will of a sovereign legislator. It is um, the will of a sovereign legislator for a particular people, not universal mankind, in the form of written legislation that is designed to make them fit for life in a particular place, separate and distinct from other nations. Legislation that is not fixed and static, but subject to change through historical time. So ancient adherence to biblical tradition would have answered the question, what's divine about divine law, by pointing to its origin in a divine will, a will expressed in history rather than nature. The attribution of divinity did not in itself necessarily confer upon the law specific qualities such as rationality or conformity to truth or universality or immutability. Otherwise, Moses would have been able to figure out the answers to those four cases he didn't know if it was just by rational deduction. Some laws of the Torah are rational, but some are clearly not. Most are particular to Israel and not universal, and they can be adjusted as the need arises. Okay, so these very different ideas of divine <coughs> collided head-on after Alexander's conquest of the eastern end of the Mediterranean in the late 4th century BCE, creating a cognitive dissonance that the West has been grappling with ever since, I think. I just tell the story to the 7th century, but there's more to be said after that. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my book, I examine the way various ancient adherents to biblical tradition, all Jews, struggled to resolve that cognitive dissonance between the biblical discourses of divine law and the very different discourses of their Greek and later Roman and Christian neighbors. So just to review the Greco-Roman um, dichotomy of divine and human law, this is on page two. There's a, a handy chart. And on the left, I've given you the characteristics of divine natural law, according to Greco-Roman tradition, and human positive law. So my natural law, it doesn't necessarily conform to truth or, or self-identical with truth. It's grounded in reason and it's rational. It's universal, it's immutable, it's eternal, and it's unwritten. Human positive law is the opposite. It doesn't necessarily conform to truth. It, it's grounded in will. Its authority is grounded in will. It can be arbitrary and not rational. It's particular. It's capable of change and flexible. It's temporary, um, and it's written. Now it's clear that the divine law of biblical tradition possesses many of the features that Greek thought attributed to human positive law, and not so many of the features 
that Greek thought would attribute to divine natural law. And it's that mismatch between Greco-Roman and biblical notions of divine law that I think was obvious and troubling to ancient Jews, and they responded to this mismatch and this cognitive dissonance in various ways. The first response I'll consider now is that of Jews who fully imbibed and embraced Hellenistic values and this Hellenistic dichotomy between divine and human law. Many of these Jews lived in Alexandria in the second and first century BCE. They spoke Greek, they adopted Hellenistic patterns of thought and culture. These Jews did not want the law of their heritage to be thought of by others, others that they admired, and they themselves didn't want to think of it as anything less than divine law according to the widely accepted criteria of the culture they so admired, Hellenistic culture. And so they worked like crazy to shoehorn the Mosaic law into the left-hand side of this chart, into the category of natural law rather than positive law, attributing to it the characteristics of Greco-Roman natural law laid out in that left-hand column. The clearest example is Philo, but in the book I talk about some other wonderful examples, including also Fort Maccabees, which is not necessarily from Alexandria. But um, the clearest example is Philo, so we'll jump right to Philo. Philo, who died in about 50 of the Common Era, so he's a first century Alexandrian Jew, who asserted that the Torah of biblical tradition possessed the qualities of divine natural law as understood by the Greek natural law tradition. Um, so in text six, I just compiled um, a few choice quotes, but um, in the book, these go on at great length, uh, I can assure you. Um, first, uh, he uh, said outright, essentially, that the law of Moses not only agrees with, but is identical to the principles of eternal nature. Whoever will carefully examine the nature of the particular enactments of the Mosaic law will find that they seek to attain to the harmony of the universe and are in agreement with the principles of eternal nature. And there are other such comments that strongly uh, not only point to agreement, but actual identification of the Torah with the natural law. Having identified the Mosaic law with the divine natural law, Philo labored to demonstrate that it possesses the properties and qualities of Greek natural law. That means it's universal, it's rational, it's self-identical with truth, it's unwritten, that's an interesting one, and it's static and unchanging. So how does he establish those claims? Well, first, to support the idea that the Mosaic law is the universal law of the cosmopolis, right? the Stoics had said the natural law is the law of the world city, the cosmopolis, Philo says just look at its narrative context. Well, of course, he ignores its immediate narrative context, which is the giving of the law to the Israelites at Sinai in order to set them apart from other nations. He focuses instead on the wider um, context, the fact that the story of the giving of the law is embedded in a larger universal narrative that begins with creation. And he shows that it is a law given by a God of the entire world and, and the entire creation. And it is therefore the universal law. In fact, in one passage, um, Philo says that the day will come when the other nations will realize that they are following peculiar and particular laws, and they'll recognize that we have the natural law. They will give up their laws and follow our laws, which is an inversion of the charge that Jews in antiquity often heard that they had particular and peculiar laws instead of um, something more universalistic. Um, so secondly, he um, asserts that um, the Torah is true and it is truth. He mocks and scolds those who think that the Bible is mere literature or history or drama or myth or any other kind of literary genre. He says that scripture <coughs> contains the canons of truth. Let's see the, the next two quotes. In every respect, the holy writings are true. In the poetic work of God, you will not find anything mythical or fictional but the canons of truth all inscribed, which do not cause any harm, and so on. Now third, Philo has to deal with the Torah's writtenness, 
which in Greek tradition is an unfailing sign of a human law. So Philo asserts that the written text of the Torah, of the Mosaic Code, is simply a copy of an original unwritten law of nature. How do we know this? We know this, he says, because the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, observed the law before it was given in written form through Moses at Sinai. How were they able to do this? Because it's the natural law. And they were sages with rational perfection. And the rationally perfect sage can perceive the law in nature, the logos, the harmony, and the order of nature, the eternal verities. And so, if the patriarchs followed the Torah, and Philo says they did, despite biblical evidence to the contrary, then that's because the Torah's natural, the Torah is natural law, and they knew it from observing nature through their rational perfection. Fourth, he says, that the law of his people has never changed down to the present day. Again, against some biblical evidence that even in biblical times there is an evolution in the law. So Philo responded to the cognitive dissonance I'd outlined by asserting that the Torah was divine law according to the Greco-Roman understanding of that term, which meant that it's rational, true, universal, and immutable. There's a second response, and I'm only going to mention this briefly because I want to get to the rabbis, um, which will occupy the rest of the lecture. But the second response is the response of Paul. Paul was a first century Pharisaic Jew, who also, like Philo, <clears throat> evaluated his native tradition, the Torah, against the ideal standard of divine law as defined by Greco-Roman tradition. But unlike Philo, he concluded that the Mosaic law does not possess the characteristics of the natural divine law on the left-hand side of the column of your chart. Um, for Paul, the Mosaic law has more of the characteristics listed in column B. It's a written constitution of particular laws. It can't therefore possibly be identified with the universal unwritten law of nature inscribed upon the hearts of all humans. And so once he's made that identification, instead of applying to Mosaic law all of the features found in Greco-Roman discourses of divine law as Philo did, Paul applies to Mosaic law all of the features found in Greco-Roman discourses of human law. Discourses that are marked by ambivalence and negativity. He represents the Mosaic Law, like other collections of written rules, as lifeless, a dead letter that kills the spirit. It is a second best accommodation to our natures, a necessary evil that may rescue us from an undesirable state of sin to a certain extent, but which is inadequate for the inculcation of true virtue, all language that is drawn very much from uh, Greco-Roman discourses of human law. So he echoes, really, Plato's pessimism about the ability of human law to bring true virtue and righteousness. And early Christians will also pick up on and echo Plato's language when they say that both the law and its human subjects are in need of a savior, a soterion, in the form of reason, or logos. And of course, Gospel of John and other places will refer to Jesus as the logos, who saves people from the law. Philo and Paul are similar in that they both accepted that basic Greco-Roman dichotomy of divine law and human law. Now, if you accept that, then you have to decide where to place biblical law, biblical divine law. When you try to square that binary division with biblical divine law, you have to make a choice. And they made radically different choices. Philo identified biblical law with Greco-Roman divine or natural law and forced upon it all the characteristics in column A and none of those in column B particularly its alliance with unchanging rationality and truth. Paul makes the opposite move. The law of Moses possesses the characteristics of positive law systems, and 
column B. And so it is not eternal, it's not universal or unchanging, it's temporary, and like all positive laws, it's even deficient as an aid to achieving virtue. It can be dispensed with in favor of the natural law written on the heart. And so we come to the rabbis of the Talmudic period. The sages who between the second and the seventh century of the Common Era developed the classic works of rabbinic tradition, the Drash, Mishnah, and Talmud. In my book, I argue that the rabbis took a third path. And that was a path that just simply resisted the divine law, human law, <coughs> as characterized by Greco-Roman tradition. Instead, they constructed a portrait of divine law in defiance of that binary opposition. The rabbinic construction of divine law, or Torah, challenges Greco-Roman assumptions about the attributes of divine law, specifically the attributes of conformity to truth, universality, or universal rationality, and immutability. So each of those characteristics is treated in a separate chapter in the book, the rabbis on the Torah and truth, the rabbis on the Torah and rationality, and the rabbis on, um, on the Torah and immutability. So one chapter, as I say, considers the attribute of truth and argues that rabbinic texts do not represent the Torah as necessarily conforming to or self-identical with various kinds of truth. Now, it's really hard to sort of take cultural terms and borrow them from one cultural context and put them into another. The rabbis don't really have a clear language or term or even a concept of truth that is really truly um, exactly the same as what we find in Greco-Roman philosophical traditions. So I had to do the best I could. Um, I tried to find what I felt were sort of the functional equivalents of something like truth um, in, uh, in rabbinic literature. So I looked for things that were clear, fixed standards or measures of an objective or mind-independent reality, if you will. And I identified three such objective standards or measures, fixed measures, in rabbinic texts. I call them formal truth or logical truth, <coughs> judicial truth, right, who's really uh, wicked and who's really right in a court case, for example, right, so judicial truth, and then physical or natural truth, right, uh, physical reality. And in the book I ask, does the Torah necessarily equate to or adhere to any of these three measures of a fixed and stable truth? That's the closest I can come to um, the Greco-Roman um, notions of truth or how it functions in Greco-Roman thought. The short answer is no. Sometimes it does, but not always. <coughs> so I consider first formal or logical truth. In hundreds of rabbinic texts, early and late, Palestinian and Babylonian, there is no explicit conceptual, I'm sorry, there is an explicit conceptual distinction between the deen, which is sort of the formally or logically authentic law, and what the actual operative law is. With just one example I could have pulled out of many is text 7. This is from Mishnah Menachot 8.5. We'll just give you a flavor of what I'm talking about. Here, the law that's produced by logical reasoning, so it should be logically true, is distinguished from and supplanted by what scripture's law actually is. So, Mishnah Chot 8.5, this is text 7. Meal offerings might logically be thought, right, they have a technical phrase for this, but dinu, it might logically be thought to require the purest olive oil. For, and now they're going to do a logical argument, for if the menorah, which is not intended for consumption, requires the purest olive oil, then surely the meal offerings, which are intended for consumption, isn't it logical that they should require the purest olive oil? But, scripture says, pure olive oil for the light, and not pure olive oil for meal offerings. Look at the rhetoric that's being used here. Logically, the law for meal offerings should be X. But, scripture simply declares something else to be the law against the dictates of formal logic, and that is the accepted law. This happens 
times. What's fascinating to me, people who study Talmud, you get so used to it, you don't even notice it. But it's fascinating that the rabbis take the time to point out again and again, look here how the divine law doesn't accord with what formal truth or logic would dictate. That's a clear rhetorical choice in their presentation of the divine law. The distinction between the formally correct or logical law and what Torah or divine law actually should be continues in the context of judgment. So we talk about judicial truth. When adjudicating the law, an uncompromising adherence to truth, the single correct answer that would emerge from an abstract study of the law, is depicted in several rabbinic texts as dangerous. It's said that Jerusalem was destroyed only because people gave judgments according to the strict or the formal law, Dina Torah, when they should have stopped short of the strict or formal law. They should have stayed lifnim mishuratadim. In the Tosefta, there's a passage that notes that Torah judges who render justice in a formally correct way that ignores the particulars of a circumstance, even though they are formally correct, they are deficient. Applying theoretically or formally correct law can be destructive. It cuts through mountains, as the rabbis say. The pious individual should contextualize the law, take into account such values as humility, compassion, modesty, peace, or charity. These are values no less important than truth. Truth is simply one value. It is not the supreme value, and it doesn't have the right to trump all other values. One should forego one's rights and uphold these other virtues, virtues that themselves should sometimes trump truth. Even in the heavenly court, actually especially in the heavenly court, uh, truth is not highly valued. Some wonderful work that's done by a scholar named Ricky, Ricky Hittery. Um, he's studied Midrashim, um, rabbinic uh, legendary material, um, that depict God as both more and less complicit in defeating truth when it comes time to judge humans. In some contexts, Hittery says, God would prefer to be persuaded towards mercy by a good lawyer, even at the expense of justice. Another case, advocate, particularly Moses, who's often the advocate for Israel, resorts to all kinds of ruses and tricks, and even bribery, to avert a just verdict and to win an acquittal for Israel. And that's an effort that's depicted as heroic. God's defeat of truth in favor of mercy and compassion is extolled as a divine virtue. For example, in a passage about the Abedazarah, Counsel is given to people um, that uh, the most propitious time to come before God for judgment is not in the first three hours of the day. In the first three hours of the day, he's occupied with truth. He's studying, and so he's studying the formally correct law, which is all about truth. So you don't want to be judged then. You should wait until the second three hours of the day when he's not occupied by truth. Then he will moderate his judgments, balancing the demands of strictly correct justice with other considerations like compassion and mercy and love in a process that employs what looks very much like Aristotle's concept of phronesis or practical reasoning. In addition, the Torah's rulings don't always align with truth in the third sense that I identify. That is to say, sort of a mind-independent objective or physical or natural reality. One very famous passage in the Mishnah, Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, um, this is perhaps one of the most well-known examples of the idea that the, the law can deviate from physical reality. Here, the rabbinic court sets the calendar accepting eyewitness testimony, which is governed by biblical rules of law, um, accepting eyewitness testimony, testimony that is clearly astronomically false, and patently so, and everyone knows it. Um, but Rabbi Gamliel knowingly accepts false testimony about the phases of the moon over the objection of some of his colleagues, and in the end, he prevails. In an elaboration of the story, which is in text 8 on your handout, 
Rabbi Akiva is represented as finding scriptural warrant for the right of, of the rabbinic authorities to determine the calendar, even if in so doing they are wrong, they're misled, or they're otherwise in error, whether inadvertently or even deliberately. Rabbi Akiva then said to Rabbi Joshua, the text says you, 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 referring to the fact that we have three verses in Leviticus associated with establishing the calendar, and then each time we have the word you. So he's going to do a creative reading of the recurrence of the term you in these three verses. It says you three times in connection with the calendar to indicate that you may fix the festivals even if you err inadvertently, you even if you err deliberately, and you even if you are misled. And Rabbi Joshua says you, you know, you've made me feel a lot better about that. Thank you so much. <laughs> right? So, um, uh, also, in uh, the Tosefta, we have the statement that erroneous calendrical determinations are completely valid. All of this is in great contrast, we should point out, to other ancient Jewish groups. There were sectarian groups, like the community of Qumran, who insisted absolutely that the calendar should reflect astronomical fact and polemicized against uh, Jews in Jerusalem for their you know, attitude towards the fixing of the calendar. The rabbis also tolerate counterfactual rulings and legal fictions in their system of divine law when these help achieve humane and compassionate goals, such as the famous case of the woman who remarries after witnesses report that her husband has died. When her husband returns, one authority allows the court to employ a legal fiction and declare that the man simply is not himself, so that the woman's new marriage is not disrupted. There was a case like this in Ohio recently. Somebody was missing for 20 years, and so they got him declared dead, and the wife had been collecting Social Security benefits to the tune of some million dollars, and then he shows up 20 years later, and they finally decided he's dead. And they told him, we're sorry, we can't be alive. <laughs> so he's actually officially legally dead. So these, these things have application in today's world. So fictive legal presumptions are also tolerated in this system of divine law, such as the presumption that all women are in a state of ritual purity when their husbands return from a journey, although clearly this will not always be factually true. Related rabbinic texts say that the motivation for adopting that lenient presumption um, in the case of menstrual impurity, is connected with the value placed upon marital intimacy and the positive command of sexual reproduction. It's a value that trumps truth, if you will, by facts. The rabbinic approach in these cases is typical of what we would call anomalous orientation to the law, in which objective facts about the world um, are not consistently privileged when determining what the law should be. Other considerations and values are allowed to trump objective facts, all the more so when those facts are only likely but not certain. We allow ourselves to make presumptions that go against what is likely fact. So what about the Torah's relation to rationality? I said it's, it's divorced from truth, it's not inherently rational, and it's immutable. So I'm just working through those three. Very briefly going to touch on um, the whole issue of rationality so we can get to the question of immutability. What about the Torah's relation to rationality? Another key indicator of divine status according to Greco-Roman conceptions of divine law. I'll be very brief. Um, let me just say that the Torah is not consistently represented in rabbinic texts as intrinsically rational and certainly not universally accessible by reason. Indeed, in hundreds of texts, the Mosaic Law is portrayed as a divine decree, many of whose commandments run counter to the natural tendencies of humans. In fact, this is celebrated. If you look at uh, Text 9, one of the most famous examples of this. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah says, how do we know that a person should not say, it's okay, I don't want to wear mixed fibers, or it's okay, I don't want to eat pork anyway, or I don't want to commit an incestuous sexual act, but rather I do want to do these things. What can I do? For my Father in Heaven has imposed his decree on me. Mm -hmm. It's better. Render it irrational 
and do it as, as a measure of your obedience, as a sign of personal discipline. There are a number of texts that talk about why that is of greater value to the rabbis and doing it because it, it accords with your nature. It's better if it is, runs counter to your nature. That's, that makes no sense in a Greco-Roman view, right? Natural law is what accords with nature, not that which goes against nature. Um, there are other texts um, which talk about the fact that the Torah contains elements that are so illogical as to inspire protest and the mockery of other nations, or Satan, Satan, or the Yetzer Hava, the, the evil inclination. Israel is compared in many texts to a slave who must obey the orders of his master without question or complaint. This is viewed positively. You see this in text 10. Well, I won't read that one now. The fourth chapter of the Pesikta Rav Kahana, this is text 11, it's just one snippet of it. The fourth chapter of the Pesikta Rav Kahana is an extended celebration of the irrationality of the law of the red pepper, right? the, the ritual procedure to purify someone of corpse impurity that involves taking the ashes of the red pepper and mixing it in a particular way and sprinkling it on the person. This is held up in many rabbinic texts as, the, as the, you know, the poster child of an irrational law, a law that has no, no apparent no rationality to it. And this text is an extended celebration of the irrationality of the law of the red heifer. Um, indeed, in this passage, the irrational and paradoxical nature of the law is proof of its divinity, not disproof. Who can bring forth a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Is it not the one? This is a playful uh, citation from the book of Job. Not quite exactly what the verse says, but it's how the rabbis read it. Who can do this? Who can bring something clean out of an unclean thing? Isn't it only God? Right? Like Abraham out of Hezekiah out of Ahaz, Mordecai out of Shimei, Israel out of the nations, the world to come out of this world. Who did it? Who commanded it? Who decreed it? Is it not the one, the unique one of the world? Um, and the same with the red heifer. Right? Who could make, take something in, um, pure, this way to purify something impure that then defiles the person who's preparing it, is irrational? Who's the only one who can do that, a divine being? So what's fascinating about this text is that the irrationality of the law is itself the mark of its divinity, very different from the Greco-Roman notion. Of course, as early as the Second Temple period, the purity laws and the dietary laws were always singled out and were always susceptible to charges of irrationality, prompting uh, Jewish authors of those times to defend them. So the letter of Aristeas defends the rationality of the purity laws and the dietary laws. Philo also offers apologetic rationales for them. Fourth Maccabees also has a dialogue with the tyrant who says, no, these are not irrational laws, these are entirely rational, and this is why. But the rabbis walk away from that apologetic, and they assert the irrationality of these laws and see it as a mark of their divine character. Even more remarkable are passages in rabbinic literature that take a law that on the face of it isn't irrational. In fact, it might even appear in the biblical text with an explicit explanation or rationale. And then they convert it into an irrational law and declare that it must be obeyed despite its irrationality because it is the decree of the king. You see this in text 12. This is in reference to the, um, the law of the stubborn and rebellious son. You might say that's not a rational law. It's, it's a harsh law, that's for sure. But in the biblical context, it is given a rationale. You want to sweep out the evil in your midst and so on. It's not like um, some of the purity laws that don't have any rationale, that this text whether you like it or not, it is a law that does have a rationale accompanying it in the biblical text. But the, but the rabbis turn it into an irrational law. All these rules about the stubborn and rebellious son are irrational. The opposite should be the case. It was taught by the rabbis that you can know that um, that is the case, that it's against reason, because by logic, again, the dean, 
who should be declared liable for the law of a stubborn uh, offspring? A son or a daughter? Logically, you'd have to say a daughter. I only have sons, so I don't know if this is true. Um, and yet the Torah has declared that the daughter is exempt. The son is liable. By logic, who should be declared liable? The minor or the adult? You would have to say the adult. Only adults are obligated under the law. But the Torah has declared the adult exempt and the minor to be liable. By logic, whom should be declared liable? He who steals from others or he who steals from his father and mother? You'd have to say one who steals from others. But the Torah has declared exempt the one who steals uh, from others and has declared liable the one who steals from his father and mother. This teaches you that all these rules derive solely from the decree of the king. Rendering this law illogical, irrational, as evidence of it stemming from the will of the king. So finally, I address the Torah's relation to immutability, another essential attribute of divine law and the Torah. According to the rabbis, the divine law is not immutable. On the contrary, the Torah is susceptible to moral critique and modification. And the fact that it is so is the very mark of its divinity. How does this work? Sometimes the rabbis will state that the divine, what the divine law is, and after doing that say, but we're not going to do that. We're setting it aside in favor of a better ruling, better in the sense of morally better, usually. We see this, for example, in Mishnah 18, 4, and 5, which lists a whole series of ordinances that adjust the divine law for the sake of the social order or for the public welfare, etc. For example, although by formal Torah law, a husband is empowered to annul a divorce document without his wife's knowledge, the rabbis rule that he may not do so for the sake of the social order. But they take pains to explicitly say, by Torah law, the person is allowed to do this. But we're not going to let them do that. We think there's a better thing to do. Um, although a slave freed by one of his two masters is technically half free, the rabbis compel his other master to free him for the sake of the social order, since otherwise the man can't marry. In short, for the rabbis, divine law does not always dictate the best and most desirable answer. And humans are essential partners in critiquing the law and making it better, usually based on some intuitive sense that the law is just wrong. In fact, the rabbis maintain that humans have the power to critique and modify a divine decree. Some texts are quite explicit in their aggressive criticism of the divine law as morally inferior. And there are some fascinating sources that describe God being corrected by the moral insights and arguments of humans. One scholar, Bill Weiss, has just written a book where he looks at 140 confrontational texts from the 3rd to the 7th centuries in which humans openly confront God for the moral blindness of a particular divine law or decree. In these texts, various characters, human characters, expose the moral imperfection, if you will, of God. Sometimes God rejects or ignores a critique. They don't always win. But sometimes, significantly, he courageously admits his flaws and he adopts the more ethical stance proposed by his human interlocutor, modifies his behavior, his decree, or his law in response. In the text 13, which is from Numbers Rabbah, a late midrash, God concedes to Moses' criticism of the principle of vicarious um, punishment, or intergenerational punishment. Uh, when the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, uh, in the course of uh, giving Moses the Torah, uh, that he visits the guilt of the parents upon the children. Right? This is God's self-introduction in Exodus 34. Moses said, wait a minute, master of the world, how many evil people give birth to righteous people? Shall they take punishment from the sins of their parents? Terah worshipped idols. Abraham, his son, was righteous. Also, Hezekiah was righteous. His father, Hezekiah, was a wicked man. 
etc. Is it appropriate that righteous people shall receive lashes for the sins of their parents? And God said to him, you've taught me something by your life. I will nullify my decree and establish your word. So Moses expresses moral outrage over the principle of transgenerational punishment. God learns from him, annuls his decree, and establishes a new rule of individual punishment. In another instance, Moses teaches God that it's best to sue for peace before engaging in war, and God is said to adopt his policy, um, the policy in place of his earlier decree of, of making war without first attempting negotiations. Uh, other rabbinic passages contain human criticism and divine concession. It's because Abraham expresses moral doubt about the flood that God decides to moderate his behavior in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, in another text, God learns a lesson in compassion and altruism from Leah. In another, Moses objects to the severity of the punishment of stoning to death for certain sins, so God revokes the punishment and institutes lashes or flagellation instead of capital punishment. So in these cases, the rabbis present modifications of divine behavior or divine law by the, by the, the, the divine legislator as the result of human input and revision. It's a short distance from the view that God consents to and is desirous of human assistance in modifying the strict justice of his own decrees to the view that he needs it. And a dramatic illustration of God's dependence on human intervention to defeat him in the execution of his own flawed decrees is found in our last text. This is from Midrash Exodus Rada 43.4. This is referring to the golden calf story. Let me give you the context first. According to the biblical story, of course, in Exodus 32, God is infuriated by the Israelites' uh, disloyalty, their worship of the golden calf, and he declares his intention to wipe them out completely. He will start again with Moses. So he orders Moses to stand aside so that my anger can blaze forth and I can destroy them. But Moses doesn't. The text says that instead, he begins to implore God not to destroy the people. And this is where the rabbinic midrash then picks up. Um, according to the rabbinic midrash, God desperately wants to forgive Israel, but he can't. He's trapped by his law, condemning idolaters to death. Um, so Moses, he says, I've already taken an oath back there in Exodus 22, ch 10 chapters ago, you will recall. I made a law there that says whoever sacrifices to a god other than you know, the Lord alone shall be prescribed, shall be destroyed. I can't retract an oath which has proceeded from my mouth. God says in the Midrash, right? This is the Midrash's construction of the story at this moment. Thinking quickly, Moses says, but wait a minute. In Numbers 30, coming up, you grant scholars the ability to absolve the oaths of, of, of people who bring a petition for the absolution of the oath and express regret. They regret what they've done. They realize they've made a mistake. Um, and so, why don't you do that? Since a good teacher should always model his rules for his students. You should be the first to avail yourself of this particular law in Numbers 30. So having persuaded God to this course of action, Moses pre prepares to hear God's petition. Um, and the Midrash then goes on to describe the very dramatic scene. That's uh, text 14. Thereupon, Moses wrapped himself in his cloak. So in other words, now he's acting like a rabbinic sage. So he puts on his tali, like a sage who's sitting waiting for a petitioner to come, hat in hand, to ask for the absolution of his vow. And he seated himself like a sage. And the Holy One, blessed be he, stood before him like one petitioning for the annulment of his vow. I, I love picturing this, you know. <laughs> what did Moses say to him? A shocking thing. Do you now regret your vow? And he said to him, I regret now the evil which I said I would do to my people. When Moses heard this, he said, it's absolved for you, it is absolved for you. There is neither vow nor oath any longer. And he absolved the vow of his creator. It's actually a wonderful pun on uh, the language in the story. 
but it's an astonishing portrait of God trapped by his own law of justice and true judgment and dependent upon the ingenious intervention of a human partner in order to escape the dictates of his divine law. So these texts from the 3rd and 7th century depict a fallible God capable of error and at times in need of moral instruction by humans. Many people assume that the Talmudic rabbis could never have seen God as less than morally perfect and open, and, uh, or see him as open to being corrected or subverted or defeated by humans. But these texts suggest otherwise. Indeed, God is even said to need and delight in such defeats. The idea of a morally evolving divine being, whose law should be subjected to moral critique and modified if necessary, stands at a great distance from Greco-Roman conceptions of divinity and the fixed and unchanging divine or natural law. To modify divine law on the basis of practical reason, phronesis, or considerations of equity, or mercy, or just good rhetorical argument, would have been just sort of nonsensical in a Greco-Roman context. Um, in Hellenistic thought, the perfect natural or divine law is an expression of a uniform, inflexible, unchanging order, always universally valid. It just makes no sense to speak of its adjustment, rather like saying, well, let's adjust the law of gravity. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Um, in fact, Greco-Roman natural law theory envisages the opposite, right? The critique and the modification of human positive laws, the laws of states, in the light of the immutable divine natural law. There are certain things that states, they just can't establish as laws because they violate natural law, so you would disable them. But in a paradoxical reversal, rabbinic sources depict the critique and modification of the divine law, the Torah, in the light of human experience and intuition. It's the divine law that's adjusted on the basis of human wisdom, not human law on the basis of a divine wisdom or perspective. And the divine law changes and evolves, not because it's imperfect, actually, but because it's perfect. A rigid, unresponsive law would be imperfect for the governance of God's world. And that's an important and radical idea. The rational modification of the law and the implied fallibility of the divine lawgiver did not negate the law's divinity or authority in the eyes of the rabbis. That's because biblical and rabbinic tradition locate their God not in static, uniform nature, or not only there, but in dynamic history. God is intimately involved in and responsive to changing historical circumstances and moral considerations. The divine law's perfection is not diminished by the fact that it's particular, flexible, or responsive, rather than universal, static, and uniform. Its perfection is constituted by those features, and humans are active participants and necessary partners with God in the ongoing evolution of this Torah. So to sum up, in the book I argue that the rabbis of the Talmudic era did not shy away from attributing to the divine Torah features considered by others in antiquity to be unfailing indicators of human positive law. But unlike Paul, who did the same in a way, they saw this as a virtue of the law and not a vice. So in constructing a picture of divine law whose very divinity was enhanced rather than harmed by its divorce from truth and its susceptibility to moral improvement and modification in response to the shifting circumstances of human experience, I think they were entirely unique. And they were also entirely scandalous. To those who accept the Greco-Roman conception of divine law, the idea that divine law is not self-identical with truth is not universal and unchanging, is shocking, indeed laughable, and I believe the rabbis knew that. Theirs was a self-aware choice, and I say this because there are many passages that I deal with in the book extensively, many passages in which the rabbis depict themselves in conversation with others who mock them, outsiders who mock them for their articulation of divine law in a way that deviates from truth and rationality and, and, and natural reality, for example. 
They knew that such features looked ridiculous to those who held that divine law by definition conforms to truth that is rational and immutable. Their ability to represent the other viewpoint, right, to represent themselves as mocked by others who held that belief, shows that they were aware of that alternative view or construction of divine law. They were consciously rejecting it, allowing the divine law to deviate from formal truth, judicial truth, physical and natural reality, rationality, and the claims of immutability. In the medieval and modern periods, the rabbinic conception of divine law would be somewhat overshadowed in the West. The Greco-Roman dichotomy of natural law and positive law would become a controlling paradigm in the conception of law in the West, and their attendant discourses would be embraced by the three biblical religions, though in very different ways and to widely varying degree, degrees, right? most notably by Christianity, of course, where natural law is the sole vehicle for a relationship with the divine. Uh, human positive law is only problematically so and only by virtue of its connection to the natural law. So we in the West, like it or not, are heirs to this tradition. Most people today, if you ask them what it means to say that a law is divine, and I know this because I have done it, they will tell you, well, it, it must govern everybody. It's universal, and it's got to be true and right, and it's certainly rational, makes sense, it's not arbitrary, and it would never change. And then we, as heirs to that tradition, map that idea of divine law onto biblical divine law, or Torah, um, we map those characteristic features of the Greco-Roman definition of divine law onto the biblical text. And so for us, too, the rabbinic construction of divine law can seem scandalous. I saw smiles on your faces when I read some of these texts where the rabbis have the divine law doing all sorts of odd things, right? Because a law divorced from truth or subject to change or evolution seems somehow human to us. But who says? Perhaps there's something to be gained from bringing the rabbinic construction of divine law out of the shadows from considering the possibility that a law and a text can be divine without being universal, absolute, unchanging truth. Thank you so much for your attention, and I will turn things over to you. I'm going to uh, follow a bit of a script here, loosely, it's not a perfect script, and, and uh, some of my comments are really by way of uh, sharing some ideas out loud, and you know, some of it might be dealt with in in the book, uh, footnotes, and, uh, it's a very thought through and subtle book in all sorts of ways, so really, we all have to go read it, but um, let me nevertheless make some comments here. Uh, Professor Christine Hayes' new book, What's Divine About Divine Law, Early Perspective, constitutes a major contribution to the study of biblical, post-biblical, and rabbinic law. This field has enjoyed a surge of scholarly production in recent decades, with an outpouring of sophisticated studies authored by Israeli and American scholars, both focused on discrete topics and major themes. And I could give examples, but I won't. Numerous reasons can be enumerated for this renaissance. Increased availability of manuscripts, new models for understanding the relationship among different primary works, a better appreciation of the transmission process including its orality, and heightened attention to the continuity and discontinuity between biblical, second temple, especially Dead Sea Scrolls, rabbinic materials. Moreover, studies have begun to employ new methodologies and increasingly engage in important interdisciplinary work. Thus, there has been an exciting intersection of biblical, second temple, and rabbinic studies, not only with the fields of ancient Near Eastern, Hellenistic, Roman, and Sasanian studies, but also more broadly with fields of comparative religious studies, 
literary theory, classical thought, and increasingly legal studies, I guess that's something, uh, being very fond, of course, of the study of post-biblical literature, but also trying to bring it into conversation with legal studies of particular interest in it. Professor Christine Hayes has been a leading voice in this enterprise, and I would add also an exceptionally generous mentor um, to her students, which I would include myself in that list. First, Professor Hayes in her study of uh, Talmud uh, Avodazarah, the Shalmi and the Bavli. Um, and here I just need a, already there, uh, it's, not, it's not really my place to sing Professor Hayes' praises and I haven't earned that role, but still I'll just say that a comment from uh, uh, that, that work already made a major splash and we all would read it when we were studying for our comprehensives and it's a clear account of where scholarship is out and then pointing to new directions and uh, I had the privilege of studying under Professor James Kugel at Harvard and he uh, pointed out when you know when you really made it in the study of rabbinics and that is when Professor Jacob Neusner authors a critical book with your name and work in the title. Um, so very few of us have reached that uh, plateau, but Professor Hayes got that. And her first book, Professor Kugel, I think it took a few books to lead on that. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, it shows that there were uh, paradigms that were shifting. And then many, many other works, which I don't need to uh, list out. Um, and now in her magisterial work, the Divine, What's the Vine About the Vinyl? Vast in its ambition, this work is at the same time meticulously argued, and despite its painstaking analyses, it is so carefully structured and lucidly formulated that it will not only be carefully read, studied, analyzed by all academics and students of post-biblical law, but will surely serve as a model of how to straddle between the analyses of macro and micro issues within this discipline and how to think in a sophisticated and illuminating interdisciplinary manner. What's the Vine about? Divine Law is a work of first grade biblical, second temple, Qumran, early Christian, especially rabbinic studies, studying the context of classics, the Greco-Roman world, the fields of religious literary studies, and especially and impressively legal studies engaging all sorts of legal scholars. It offers rich insights into the ideas and ideology of the biblical, classical, and post-biblical world in page after page, often through critical and nuanced readings of biblical, Greco-Roman, Second Temple, Qumran, Philo, Pauline passages, and sundry rabbinic sources. And I'm just going to add, even though I'm just summarizing a little bit what it does, it also, and I think this is fairly unique, engages foundational and also contemporary scholarship, and including the works of junior scholars, which I think is part of um, you know, Professor Hayes' unique approach of engaging and mentoring. Um, but it also has a larger thematic arc, as you heard tonight, that is tightly crafted with a strong provocative thesis. <coughs> the book explores various conceptions of biblical, uh, of divine law and antiquity, discerning two competing models, as we heard tonight, a classical and a biblical one, and then pursues the questions of notions of divine law in subsequent periods, which are largely informed by biblical, but also encounter the classical model. This leads to an analysis of various conceptions of divine law, including the rabbinic one, and also leads to this striking or scandalous conclusion about the third way of the rabbis. The book covers so much real estate that inevitably there are passages that one wants to ponder further. Perhaps to contest a reading here or there, 
to try to adduce other texts, both in support of or as a challenge to the author's thesis, as well as the temptation to mine suggestive footnotes that reward careful study and consideration. Personally, I'm also tempted to bring it into conversation with work that I've been doing on of a much less magisterial nature about um, the institutional role in divine law. But I'll leave that. In my role as respondent this evening, I wish to mainly focus on the rabbinic attitudes, that last part. Since that is the most provocative or scandalous position analyzed in the book, to which the author devotes several chapters, and you also saw here tonight that we spent probably a little more time on that, and it's probably of greater interest to this audience. So I want to make three types of points or observations. Um, the first two are trying to think about alternative perspectives about how to engage this rabbinic material, and it sort of as a question mark, are they alternative or not? Do they somehow come to the same thing? Or are they incomplete in some ways? And then, thirdly, to sort of raise a question, to pose a question which may be a sort of a follow-up subject of study that the book in, opens up with. So let me start with the first one. As stated, the book explores diverse conceptions of divine law in antiquity and late antiquity, and situates rabbinic discourse within this broad framework. Perhaps an alternate perspective from which to evaluate the rabbinic material, and it seems that this is probably the more conventional approach that is usually adopted to the subject, is to narrow or sharpen the query by asking, what is the nature of a divine law that is assigned to human hands? Where the rabbinic material is probably the leading exemplar of this phenomenon. In other words, there is an important subset of conceptions of divine law that conceives of divine law being transmitted to human custodians, interpreters, jurists, etc. Of course, we know that rabbinic theology, generally speaking, takes a strong stand on the human role. And again, I'm speaking generalities. And here the slogan, of course, Lo Bashamayim, He, it is not in heaven. The revealed Torah is not in heaven, but instead humans have an active role in its reception, transmission, interpretation, development. In a way that it far exceeds any of the other interpreters that we encounter in this book. So this is the alternate perspective which opens up, I guess, a question. I wonder whether this more conventional approach is analogous, or at least converges upon, or alternatively, is it distinct from the book's approach to the rabbinic material? I want to be clear, I'm not talking about all of the rabbinic material in the book, because the book also talks about attitudes towards Rukim, I don't think that would be covered. But a fair amount, I think, would be covered. Or to formulate this differently, is the scandalous position of the rabbis, which this book is exposing, much more scandalous than the scandal of Loba Shemaimhi? Doesn't Loba Shemaimhi, it is not in heaven, lead to a divine law that resists the divine law-human law dichotomy? The divine law that brokes debate, has rooms for compromise, allows for pragmatic or humanistic goals, is capable of modification, etc. In the book, when you read it, Professor Hayes, of course, is very careful to make a critical point. It would be erroneous to map on biblical law onto the divine 
and rabbinic amplification, expansion, rabbinic law onto positive law. Instead, she insists, and I think this is 100% right, that both biblical law and rabbinic law in the eyes of the rabbis are linked to divine law. But this leads to a crucial corollary that I'm asking maybe should be more amplified in the book, and that is divine law that has a biblical and rabbinic dimension, i.e. a heavenly and human dimension in rabbinic eyes, will likely have a profoundly different nature. Now, perhaps it is still important to ask the more narrow query of the nature of divine law that is assigned to human hands. Perhaps it must have a scandalously different nature, perhaps not. Here the key foils would be works like Qumran law, but Qumran doesn't have the same notion of human active reception and agency, or alternative perspectives within rabbinic law that resist lo or other religious traditions like Islamic law, not from a chronological perspective, but from a conceptual one. Or another way maybe to ask it, so is it the God of Israel, or is it the human recipients who alter the nature of divine law? And if there is an alternate perception of God, is that just a necessary projection, given the striking role of the rabbi? Second, alternate perspective. Because I'm not sure the first is alternate, but that's what I'm asking. The second one, I think, though, is an alternate perspective on this rabbinic material. And that's to view it or encounter it from the perspective of legal studies or legal traditions. Arguably, at least certain things that we are identifying in the course of studying this material in the book within this rabbinic exception makes better sense and are less exceptional when approached from the perspective of legal studies. The method of the book, as we heard tonight, is to enumerate certain fundamental features, attitudes, positions in divine or human law, and then to sort them as divine or human, natural or positive, and then to problematize this list. But maybe an alternate way to think about the features that were listed is whether they belong to or are plausible in relationship to elementary or, and here's really the focus, advanced, mature, thick legal systems. Of all the various conceptions analyzed in the book, only two, I mean, I'm generalizing, but I think this isn't so debatable, emanate from or are situated within what I would call thick or mature legal systems, Roman law, and rabbinic law. We didn't study Roman law here, but Cicero and some of those thinkers who are operating within that universe, and the rabbis certainly operating within the universe of rabbinic law. It would seem, and I offer this as an observation, as a conjecture, a tentative hypothesis, or to pose it as a, an inquiry for legal history, that any legal system that is mature or thick needs to have certain features encountered within the rabbinic conception. Writing, modification, legal fictions, and I think other examples of phenomena we encounter in the book. Indeed, both mature legal systems within this book, Roman law and rabbinic law, have these features. Now the question is how to conceptualize these thick legal systems. Whereas Roman law can be characterized as human positivistic law, rabbinic law must reject that position. 
For the justification, legitimacy, authority, fundamental nature of rabbinic law is as an outgrowth of biblical law and ultimately divine law. Thus, rabbinic law as a mature, developed law, as a function of the rabbis developing the notion of a religion of law in a manner that far eclipses all other post-biblical conceptions encountered in this book. Necessarily, I'm wondering, Hack necessarily assumes certain of these attributes. That's the question. So the solution of fine law, of bridging the gaps, not really open for the rabbis. Because Philo is operating with a, what I'm calling, a thin type of a legal system. In a thin type of a legal system, you could have this more pristine, idyllic account, but not in a thick one. Likewise, the critique of Paul offers little of relevance to the rabbis. For Paul's divine law is abstract or in the heart, but hardly constitutes a thick legal system. So the test of a thick divine legal system would not be Paul's divine law, but medieval canon law which is written, which does change, and I'm sure has legal fictions too. Thus, maybe it's the thickness of rabbinic divine law that backs it into this position, this scandalous position. So I'm deconstructing, or wondering, can we deconstruct this ideology rather than taking it out of its face as a deliberate, positive rabbinic ideology? My third and final uh, point is a different kind of a point. It's more a type of a question. And it follows from Professor Hayes' project of employing legal theory. But here I want to apply it to better understand the nature of rabbinic legal discourse. This is, I think, you know, uh, surfaces in all sorts of ways in this book, but I'm not sure is addressed head on. So I'm, it's sort of a question and sort of the book invites us to explore this more. But let me begin it by posing a question. I'm certainly not the first one to pose this question. I think in the book this question is cited as well. From a jurisprudential or legal theory perspective, what is the nature of rabbinic law? Is rabbinic law positivistic, realistic, a form of natural law, formalistic, etc.? I'm especially referring to the rabbinic interpretive license over biblical law. The rabbis have significant interpretive powers. What justifies these powers jurisprudentially, and what guides them in their legal hermeneutics? The thrust of this book, analysis of the rabbinic viewpoint, is that for the rabbis, the Torah is divine because it originates in the will of God, and that the rabbis are not solely guided by reason. So the rabbis, if we have to, you know, in, in the chart that was produced here, their focus is more on the will of God. A type of divine positivism. But classical positivism will only take us so far in justifying or guiding the rabbis or accounting for what they're doing. And Professor Hayes, in, in the book and in footnotes, ex explores this and talks about it. So what are they doing? What they're doing is not straight up positivism, right? HLA Hart would be uh, scandalized at what they're doing to use that word, right? In other words, a pure positivist would say, well, you have to defer to the will of the one who posited the law. But the rabbis are taking this active hermeneutic role that doesn't just seem to have this deferential quality. In the hard cases, they don't sit on the sideline 
They do all sorts of things, and I, I think it's very hard to describe what they're doing as the positivistic method. In reaching uh, this claim of where the rabbis are in the book, as we heard tonight with the example of Mishnah Menachot and the many other examples in the book, the book makes arguments about the limits of reason or logic for the rabbis, but these arguments have to be further interrogated. Surely much of rabbinic hermeneutics is trying to employ svarah and tools of logic. And Professor Halbertov has argued that at times the rabbis are guided by a moral calculus. So they do have certain natural law tendencies, but these are not exclusive as portrayed and argued in the book. Even in the rabbinic interpretation of scripture, it is following hermeneutic tools that have a sort of logical structure to them, or perhaps a formalistic structure. And Hanina ben Menachem has talked about the realist impulse of the rabbis. And the book likewise talks about the rabbinic impulse towards peace, clemency, humanistic goals. And even when ultimately will trumps logic, the book admits that this isn't through a slavish deference to scripture, but requires a certain reading of scripture, which makes one wonder, what is it that makes a given reading appealing? It's not logic, so what is it that steers them in that direction? But at times there is a deferential quality, too, to the decree of scripture and the will of the Bible. So the rabbis are positivist to a degree, rationalist to a degree, follow natural law to a degree, perhaps, formalist to a degree, pragmatic realist to a degree, but with limits, positivistic limits. But the rabbis are not strict positivists, and they certainly aren't strict adherents of any other jurisprudential school. In other words, the book brilliantly points out that rabbinic discourses, uh, a notion of divinity, has attributes from both the columns, reason and will, eternal but revising, etc. But the question is, is there coherence in this approach? It's not the natural law of Dworkin. It's not the formalism of Shower. It's not the positivism of Hart. So what is it? Maybe these divisions and antinomies are tired ones. But then what is the right jurisprudential terms for what rabbinic legal discourse is? Can we give a more positive account? And then perhaps just a broad formulation, which actually I'm not really satisfied with, so maybe I'll just sit down, but something like a more capacious notion of the will of God, which through an active human um, exercise, trying to sort of divine and maneuver, recognizing certain limits to human capacity. That was obviously quite clumsy. But can we come up with a version that's less clumsy? So overall, I end where I started. Thank you so much, David, for such fantastic comments, and I will try to do um, justice to them. I, you know, you, you, I'm just disappointed in one thing. I always try to get through a talk about the book without raising Lovish and I <laughs> And I think it's pretty amazing that in the 400 page book, it doesn't appear dealing with this topic, that was by design, it is footnoted. There's one footnote somewhere that says C, about the next season. <laughs> but I actually don't raise that text. For those of you who don't know, that's the classic text, of course, where the rabbis you know, declared the law to be X, where God has said, you know, I think the law really should be Y. And the response is, Lomish and I mean, it's in our hands. And um, the truth, you know, the Torah can deviate even from the intention of its, of its author. Um, 
So uh, the, the, it's so interesting to me that you asked the question that you asked about um, maybe a place to start really is about the concept of divine law being given into human hands and sort of the problems that arise or the, or the issues that attend the commission of divine law into human hands. It's so funny because that was actually how the book began. Originally the book was going to be called Rabbinic, uh, Rabbinic Authority, Rabbinic Anxiety. That was the original <coughs> And it was precisely going to be a much, much shorter book. Uh, focused on this issue of what do you do when you believe you have the God, the, the law of God in your hands, but not the wisdom of God, right? When you would, you, you, you could um, adopt a principle of faithful infallibility, right? That's the, that's the way the Catholic Church deals with it. We have the law of God, and we have to have one guy who's infallible when he tells us what it is for you, right? And that gets rid of all the anxiety, right? And, and the rabbis don't go that way. They, they pronounce their own infallibility over and over again, and yet still, them see, still see themselves as administering a divine law. That was actually how my whole interest in this began six years ago. And I think there is some article somewhere that first talks about that somewhere. Um, and I decided, in the end, as I began to explore that, that that actually was the sub-question that pointed to a much larger question I had to deal with, which is, but you first have to understand what divine law is to even understand whether this is a problem or whether you think this is the way it needs to be or it should be, and that it is the perfection of divine law that is given to human beings to administer and so on. So I, I think it's so interesting you heard that issue echoing in the background of the book because I think ultimately that was really where it began. So um, you're suggesting, is this an alternative way to look at it? Yeah, I think so. I think there's something of a circle here. And to, it's hard to make a case that one issue is foundational and the other is subsidiary. I think you could start, right, like the Talmud itself, just jump in somewhere and start swimming. You could enter this question, I think, in precisely in that doorway as well. Um, so, in fact, I really did start thinking about this through that issue, but felt in the end I wasn't satisfied just to look at it from that perspective, that I needed to address larger questions of the whole concept of divine law to begin with, to see why it should be a problem that humans would be charged with, the, you know, with, with um, administering it and so on. Um, so that's the first question. Um, ah, so you talked about, your second point was, maybe what the rabbis do is less exceptional when you approach it from a position of legal studies. So that's, again, precisely what I wanted not to do, because it seemed to me that when we look at the Talmud as legal studies, it doesn't look very exceptional. And it struck me over and over again how remarkably exceptional it was. And so I wanted to step out of a framework that made it look, oh, all legal systems do that. We have legal fictions everywhere. We have law and Roman law at the same time, right? The two legal systems that developed the whole notion of a legal fiction at the same time, the first time in the history of the world, right? Roman law and rabbinic law, roughly in the same, you know, contiguous one from another, same part of the world, same period of time. That can't be too coincidental, right? So, yes, you're right. Mature legal systems do all of these sorts of things. And so we can kind of regularize what's going on and view this as not very remarkable. And yet, I kept observing that not only I kept <coughs> my eyebrows raised when I would see them do some of these things, but my students would. Or if I give a talk where we look at the case where the rabbis say that the man returning from, from the dead is not himself, and people are saying, wait, wait, this is a divine law. How can a divine law rule in, in opposition to truth and reality? So the more I try to think about it as having many of the characteristics of legal systems, which at one point in my life I was doing as I was learning more about law and legal systems, the more I realized that that was kind of ignoring signals from within the text themselves. Because not only was I reacting to the text in a certain way and wondering where that reaction came from, my students reacted to it in a certain way, but the texts themselves mark with their own rhetoric the remarkableness of what they're doing. The rabbis repeatedly depict themselves as being laughed at for having a divine legal system that has these characteristics. 
No one for a minute assumes that in American law, when someone is acquitted of a crime, that they are actually innocent. I don't think anybody really thinks O.J. Simpson is innocent, okay? Um, and we accept that because it's a human legal system and that's just what, what we don't have expectations of truth for law. But there's something odd or uncomfortable um, about a system that claims divine authority somehow not being aligned with truth. So yes, on the one hand, if I just want to just bracket those sorts of claims about the source of the law's authority, if I want to bracket it and look at it as a mature legal system, there is nothing remarkable about what the rabbis do. But that's precisely what's remarkable. They are doing in a system of divine law that's underwritten by divine authority what nobody else is doing in a system of divine law at that time. It's precisely doing the things that they would say you can do in human law and you must do in human law and you can only do in human law, right? Evaluate things, use these processes of, of phronesis, allow it to deviate from the strict truth in order to bring equity. All of that kind of language, it is going on around them, but it's going on precisely in a law that is human, human legal systems. Roman law is a, is a secular legal system. I hope everybody knows that it's completely, absolutely a secular legal system, and that's why they would do these things. So how could the rabbis, in fact, appropriate those? Now, and when I say it's marked by their own rhetoric of surprise, one of the things that happens in the book that I didn't do here is in each case, I do try to show that there is a contesting voice. So towards the end of each chapter, for example, when I'm talking about the divorce of Torah from truth, the divorce of Torah from rationality, I show the pushback sources, especially as you move later. And in Babylonia, there's greater and greater discomfort with that. And I see that's going to be when you get to the end of the Talmudic period and start to move to the medieval period, they're going to be really uncomfortable with what the rabbis have constructed. So there is pushback. But again, to me, that signals something. They themselves are looking at what they're doing and saying, this is kind of scandalous. And I don't want to ignore that. So I could sort of say, well, from the point of view of legal studies, lots of legal systems look like this. But I don't want to ignore their own voices of, of that, that signal to me that they understand what they're doing to, in fact, be quite radical. No one else is in a system that's underwritten by divine authority. And what account of the divine do you have to have to make it possible for you to not only do this, but for you to do this with the confidence that somehow it truly represents the divinity of the text, not just runs from it. So, so um, two really great ways to think about this, and certainly things that um, I employed a little bit as I was sort of thinking through how I wanted to present it. Really great point about you know get, how can I give a jurisprudential account of rabbinic law, and I am in fact reminded of Maimonides' negative theology. Um, we cannot give a positive account of God. We can only say, well, he's not you know evil, and he's not mortal, and he's not a whole bunch of other things. So I absolutely agree with you, and I'm glad that that came out loud and clear in the book. That I don't think that uh, rabbinic the rabbinic construction of Jewish law, the rabbinic construction of Jewish law can be accounted for according to any of our current theories of jurisprudence. It is not natural law. It is not positive law. Um, and even the School of Historical Jurisprudence does not account for it. However, it does have characteristic traits of all three of those things. And that's in the chapter on biblical law. Again, I did short shrift to that here. I, I, um, I like this word discourses. Um, instead of trying to say this is what the rabbis think law is, I say this is how the rabbis talk about law. Uh, that's as far as I can go. I can't get at the metaphysics behind it, perhaps. I can't necessarily get at the jurisprudential theory behind it. But I can certainly talk about how they talk about the law and then what that empowers and enables them to do with it or to it. <laughs> so in, in the biblical chapter, I show that here are, here are verses and here are texts in the Bible that give you resources for constructing a notion of divine law as being based in the will of a sovereign, very much like a positivist account. But 
And there's a section that deals with your resources in the biblical text. They're fewer, but they're there, that enable you to construct divine law, biblical divine law, as um, reflecting the wisdom or the rationality of a creator. Those are the ones Philo is going to seize upon, right? Certain people are going to seize upon those. And then here are resources in the biblical text for understanding law as emerging from a historical relationship between a sovereign and a community, right? As arising from a narrative, as arising from a covenant. Um, and all three of those things are in the biblical sources. I think all three of those are replicated in the rabbinic material. So in fact, the best answer that I could give you for that question is that I think, in fact, it defies any single category and combines elements of all three. Is that messy? Yes. But I think all three of those serve as a corrective. There are times in which rabbinic material suggests that the Torah's claim to our fidelity lies in its rational character. There are times when the biblical text, um, would, the rabbinic um, texts would suggest that the Torah's claim to our authority lies in the fact that it represents the will of the divine sovereign. And there are times that its claim to our fidelity lies in a covenantal relationship with the God experienced through history and the identity of the community. All three of those are strong claims for our fidelity. Right? This is what the rabbis, I think, are saying. And one, one is not in isolation of the other. They keep each other in check. And at different times, different ones will trump. There isn't one that is like rock, paper, scissors. Right? It's a circle. <laughs> it goes around. And so sometimes one trumps another, but in a different situation, you know, it might trump in a different way. And I do think they hold all three of those things in tension, and each um, uh, represents a different aspect of, of normative behavior and what it is for us to feel compelled or obligated towards ethical behavior. So, yeah, I guess I kind of, you know, guilty as charged. I, I really do think our jurisprudential theories do not account for the wonderful, complex, and messy um, picture of law that emerges from rabbinic texts. And then your fourth um, was about, shoot. I, I think that's the Was that really it? I, yeah. I covered all those things. Um, yeah, and so, and so I think in the end, what it's really telling us is that we need phonesis. If I had to sort of match it up with something most closely in antiquity, I would almost say the rabbis are most like, probably their, their cultural um, counterparts in the Roman world were the jurists. And this is what the jurists do. If you read the jurist literature, they always start off, so the Roman jurists, right, you tell us what you know, the laws are and so on. They, we have the institutes of guidance and various people that look a lot like the mission and some are literature. But they will start off with these introductions where they say there are three types of law. The natural law, and then and the civil law, and the law of nations, and these are the characteristics, and so on. And according and, and the civil law can never overturn the natural law, and so on. And they give these nice, they give lip service to these nice natural law principles. And then you get into the body of the work, and they're violated all over the place. You know, they're using their reasoning, and uh, slavery is against the natural law. You can never have slavery, and, so on. and then they'll give us a whole bunch of laws about how to treat your slaves, right? So. Um, so, so they were practitioners, they were jurists, they, they engaged in sort of phrenesis, so the, both the rhetoricians, the jurists, and the lawyers, I mean, these are people who had to work with the law, despite whatever larger abstract principles people had, and, and that's why I see the rabbis, the rabbis are, um, they are using tools of various kinds to construct this flexible mechanism, um, and they could have done otherwise, they could have, they could have allowed this to be the tradition of the fathers. It could, we, could have been, we could have ended up with something like the Pharisaic position, which is that there's biblical law. And then there's this other stuff we call the tradition of the fathers. Now, the Sadducees didn't like that. They said, well, we just follow biblical law. We don't want any of that human stuff, the tradition of the fathers, you know. Um, and at the end of the day, in a way, even though people say Pharisaic Judaism won, really, in a way, the Sadducees won. 
because the Pharisees got so nervous about the fact that these extra oral laws that they had, these traditions of the fathers, seemed to be ungrounded in scripture, that they began this huge exegetical exercise of grounding everything in scripture. Um, and so in a way, the Sadducees won. Unless you can pin it back in the biblical text, then it's not authoritative. So, you know, what if the Pharisees had won? What if, what if Judaism had come down to us in this double form, um, where you really have sort of scriptural law, and then you have rabbinic law, which is not understood to be grounded in the divine text, or the rabbis are not even authorized by the divine text? What if we had a separation of powers, as we have in Roman law, you have the 12 tables, then you have the seats of the great doors, and they're separate from one another. They can cancel each other. They're equal sources of authority. What if they had chosen to do that, but they didn't? And they subsumed the human part under the claims of scriptural and divine law. And that's what's created this interesting and awkward sort of interaction of the human and the divine within the system of divine law that has to somehow be accounted for. And I've talked too much, so let me ask if there are any questions at this point. Thanks very much. I just want to say it's really a testimony to the richness of Professor Hayes' talk that evoked such a wonderfully challenging response of uh, Professor Plato, a testimony of his response that evoked this you know, very illuminating uh, counter response uh, as well. So uh, we, we had some a question over there, and then so we'll maybe take a few at a time. So and then we'll go here. Okay. So maybe we'll take like three at a time. You actually took most of my question away, too. But the ones with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we also have Carians. Sorry? They also have Carians. And they're here and represent yet another experience within Judaism. Right, and, and what is the Karaites' main charge? What is it that they dislike about the law? Is it's just human. And why is it human? Because it's full of controversy and argument. Divine law would be rational. There wouldn't be disputes and argumentation, right? This is in the medieval period, right, when Greco Roman notions of rationality and reason are being embraced by the monotheistic traditions as well. So, um, the way that Judaism is starting to feel more susceptible to that charge and starting to try to rationalize much of what they're doing with Maimonides and others. Um, but yes, but that's very much the charge of the Karaites. What, this doesn't look like divine law. And why doesn't it look like divine law? Because it's multiple, it's, it's multi multiplicity in the argumentation. The divine law would be single and one. So, it's the controversial nature of the mission that makes it clearly human. Also, why? Yeah. Why do you bring in Paul? Isn't he sort of uh, have an ulterior motive? I'm sorry? Why, why do you bring in Paul? Yeah, why, isn't he? he has an ulterior motive and it, it comes through very clearly in Everybody the has <laughs> As opposed to whom? That doesn't just qualify him as an actor in the world. Um, <laughs> because everyone has an ulterior motive, everyone needs to argue something. Actually, my, my argument about Paul is actually really bizarre, and I don't know if you managed to read that chapter or if you focus more on the rabbinic. It's a really strange kind of argument. Um, I don't know what New Testament scholars are going to do with this. I know a couple who think it's right, but anyway. Um, my argument is that actually Paul was an exclusivist. Um, some other work that I've done in my book on Gentile impurities and Jewish identities that looks at Jewish identity has argued that you really have two notions of Jewish identity coming out of antiquity. One is um, based on sort of Ezra's holy seed ideology, which is that Israel is a holy seed set apart, and there can be no such thing as conversion. Gentiles cannot become Jews. There's no access to Israelite identity for those other than those who are born to it. And, um, and then there's a school that was not that, and which would be the view that would prevail, ultimately, in rabbinic Judaism and, and 
much of normative Judaism, not all, but much of normative Judaism, which is that Israelite identity is something that can be metaphorically adopted and Gentiles can convert and can become members of the community of Israel, right? The dispute between Paul and the Jerusalem church is a dispute over whether or not Gentiles entering um, the community of Israel, of, of Jesus following Israel, um, had to convert to Judaism, if you will, had to adopt the Torah and be circumcised and be fully law-observant. Um, the, sta the standard conventional view is that the Jerusalem church headed by James, Jesus' brother, was the exclusivist church because they insisted that the Gentiles had to adopt the law. That was exclusivist. Paul, on the other hand, was the inclusivist, saying, no, they don't have to adopt the law. My argument flips that on the head. That Paul was the exclusivist who said, Gentiles cannot become Israelites. You have to be circumcised on the eighth day, and he calls himself an eighth day circumcised. You have to be circumcised on the eighth day, or that's it. You can't. The most you can do is recognize God and stop beating up on us. And he wanted Gentiles to recognize God, because only then would the end days come, would the Messiah return and establish God's kingdom on earth, which would consist of priests, Levites, Israelites, and in the fourth class, Gentiles. So how do you send a message to this group of Gentiles saying, we want you to recognize the God of Israel, we want you to come into the community, but this far and no further, because frankly, you're not allowed to be Israelites, and you're not allowed to worship the Torah. Best way to do that is to speak about this Torah, this divine Torah, as not so divine, not something you really want. It doesn't really lead to virtue. You don't need it. But I don't think it was genuine on his part. I think he was law-observant and probably expected Israelites to be law-observant, and this was his... He was selling a lemon, essentially. He was trying to sell a fourth-class status to a group of people, and so needed to use language about the law that they were familiar with. He's speaking to Gentiles. That's their thought world, right? That's their discourse of law. Divine law looked like a bunch of things, so that was convenient for him. And so in his letters to the Romans and in his letters to the Corinthians and the Galatians, you see him using this language that says, you don't need to do that. That's, you don't need to do that. You just need to recognize the God of Israel. You don't want the law. It's not going to lead you to virtue. In fact, it's going to trap you in sin. He's using all of the language of Greco-Roman discourse about human positive law that's negative and ambivalent. I think then, subsequent to Paul, the church took this literally, and, 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 but that was actually, I think, not Paul's intention. So I, have to, I wanted to talk about Paul because I think there's something interesting going on with Paul, but I wanted to use him as a way to show how these discourses were available to people in antiquity, he seized upon it for a particular goal, um, and but so did other people, right? And I don't think others are any less engaged in that kind of work. So I, again, I wanted to talk about um, the way different discourses, metaphors, and language about law are used by different groups in different ways to achieve different things. There's a whole section on the Qumran community, um, which is kind of fun because in that, that's very different. That, the Qumran community, these are the sectarians, right? Um, I argue that in a way they're like Philo. They want to bridge the gap between Hellenistic notions of divine law and um, biblical divine law. They just do it in a totally different way. Where Philo wants to give all the laws of, all of the attributes of natural law to the Mosaic law to bring them together and make the Mosaic law rational and universal and so on. Qumran does the opposite. They take the laws of nature and they positivize them. So that the laws that govern nature, these were decrees fixed by God, and, um, and they represent his will, not a rational order, to the extent that the heavenly bodies can disobey them. The stars can refuse to come out, and they can therefore sin, and they can be punished. 
right? So you have this notion of the laws of nature as being positive decrees and not rational order. It's another way to bridge the gap between these notions of divine law, but just in a totally different direction. So I found it useful to go through so many different groups that I couldn't talk about here tonight and to look at how all of them are, I think, ultimately dealing with the same cognitive dissonance and resolving it in all sorts of radically different and interesting and useful ways, usually all, though, with some purpose or agenda behind it. <laughs> okay, you want to ask? First of all, thanks so much for your talk. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm really happy to have you here. Um, so I was really interested in, in how you posited that the rabbis sort of saw themselves as fallible, and they had some anxiety in terms of how they were positing their own, their own law. So I wanted to sort of ask you about how that fits into the notion of there's sort of this trope within, 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 within Jewish law that the, each, each, um, each progressing generation is less great or less knowledgeable than the one before. So how does that fit into your understanding? So the wonderful thing about rabbinic literature is you can find almost everything in there. <laughs> so um, uh, we often can assert something and then talk about the shadow side of it. So when I talk about rabbinic anxiety over some of these issues, that's because it's the shadow side of rabbinic confidence. Um, you will always find these things crab in your hairs. So for every text where the rabbis stand up to God and say it is not in heaven, you know, we've got some texts where they're pretty anxious about the fact that what they're doing seems so strange or counterintuitive, or are we maybe forcing the text to say things it shouldn't? And I can find five or six texts that say that at the same time as I find five or six texts that celebrate the whole idea that, that humans can do such radically wild things, the scriptural text. So, so you do find um, assertions as well as pushback. And I hope that's something that I do try to do in the book. But even though that's true, I think if you apply a kind of um, a chronological analysis as well as looking at different geographical regions, you can still tell a story about it being stronger in certain times and places, one, one position being stronger. So earlier on, and in the Palestinian materials, so through the third, fourth century, um, that's when we see greatest comfort with, with the portrait that I've described here. And it's as you move to Bavel, to Babylonia, and as you move to sort of the uh, middle of the fourth century, so from the fourth generation of rabbis on, um, so about mid fourth, fifth, sixth century, that's when you start to see some apologizing. So for example, some legal fictions and legal presumptions that are clearly not based in fact in the earlier sources, the Babylonian Talmud, the anonymous voice in the Babylonian Talmud, which we usually think is like, undoes them. And that famous case with the calendar, right? The whole point of that case with the calendar is that Rabbi Gamliel is allowing <coughs> the first day of the month to be declared on what is clearly astronomically not the first day of the month. And in the Babylonian Talmud, they say, how can you do that? How can you do that? And the answer is, he wasn't giving a ruling in contradiction to the astronomical facts as he knew them. He had a tradition from his household that sometimes the moon takes a shorter circuit. And it actually can really come up. Now that's fascinating. That to me, that's that's them marking their own anxiety, right? How can I ignore that text? They're telling you that they're uncomfortable with this. And so they undo it and they provide a realist case for that, that decision, which is clearly in its original source all about standing up and taking the law and not letting physical reality dictate it. But they unpack and undo many legal fictions as you move later in the Talmudic period. And I think it's that, that voice that's starting to nag a little bit too much at them. Really, is this what divine law can do? Can we do this? <laughs> All right. And then you and then Carlos. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. And then maybe um, I'll take it. I was just going to that there's an issue that came up in jurisprudence, and it's is the issue of authority. Uh, authority. So I thought as well, I just I couldn't imagine how they were sort of establishing their authority at this point. I was wondering if you could 
really
to Toledo at least, I think we can make a case for Aristotle, but with me, Aristotle might be aside. Uh, and he's in Toledo, I think this economic activity does not hold. And I think Toledo does have a concept of defining all that is pretty much closer to a different concept. Um, uh, maybe, and then sort of he does things with myth too, and we play of course, myth is. It's very interesting because uh, it's, it's much more mixed. So, just to help, can, I, it looks like you have more of a question to come though. Can I just address a little bit of that? Um, so one of the things I, I make it very clear that I do is, it would be impossible for me to give, here's a systematic account of Plato on divine law. Now here's a systematic account of you know, Aristotle. Here are the cynics, here are the Stoics and so on. That's not my goal. What I'm trying to do is, what resources existed in the Greco-Roman world for people who wanted to think and talk about divine law? And so instead, what I do is I divide my chapter up by discourses. Here are 10 discourses about divine law. How about divine law and virtue? So here, here's what Plato had to say about that, or Aristotle had to say about that, or this is what the cynics had to say. There's no way that law leads to virtue. So here's the discourse, discursive world, drawing from rather eclectic sources. I'm not trying to give a fair account of Plato and what he thinks about it. I'm not trying to give a fair account of any of these characters. But if I'm sitting with the sort of popular perceptions of, um, of that are distilled down in the second, first century and the first century CE, that have distilled down, that draw on these discursive practices, what language is available for me to try to make sense now of the biblical law of my tradition? What's interesting is that Plato himself already does this in the laws, right? It, the whole the whole premise of his book, The Laws, is two people trying to make sense of this cognitive dissonance. So it's not, I don't mean to suggest that there's sort of the Greco-Roman world and the biblical, and they're counterposed to one another, and that's the meaning. Within the Greco-Roman world, you have people who have the same problem, right? Um, so Clinius and Megalus are these two characters from Crete and Sparta, and I forget who's from which, but they claim that their cities have divine law. And the Athenian stranger who's uh, speaking to them starts to ask some questions. Really? Well, tell me about the characteristic traits of your divine, your, your so-called divine law. And as he asks these innocent questions, they, they discover that their laws have changed. And various other things. But primarily, it's the fact that the laws have changed, that they're not immutable, that makes them say, wow, I guess they're not divine laws. They're human laws after all. This is Plato already, several centuries before. I think this was a live debate in antiquity in general. But I'm just interested in the Jewish story, so I'm I do a kind of schematic, here are 10 discursive practices about law drawn from a variety of places. I do not give a good account of each person. So hence the, you know, hence the sort of cherry picking ideas. So I probably should follow David Plato's advice and read the book. But let me maybe press the point a little bit more. So, so, I'm, 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 so I'm, not, I'm not sure that this is really the conclusion that Plato wants us to derive from this discussion between the Athenian stranger and the Spartan but, but you know, it's clear that in the law in the laws itself, what Plato does is actually he offers us you know a code of divine law, which is a concrete code that can be revised under certain circumstances. It's uh, you know destined for you know it's a fictional city state Magnesia, which has you know, certain right. similarities with Sparta in some sense like a you know kind of a, a rational reconstruction of Spartan political and legal institutions. Um, so you know, so you definitely have something that Plato wants us to perceive. Sure, no, there's a thought exercise in constructing one by right. reason. It's precisely yeah. only done through reason. Right. It's entirely rational. Right, right. So it's rational, but it is particular. It is uh, you know, not eternal. It is not eternal. It's beautiful. And of course, it has all these characteristics that Absolutely. seem to put it in the Absolutely. So again, I want to stress. I think cultures in general were dealing with all these things, and certainly within Greco-Roman culture, there's a story for somebody to tell there about how they're also grappling with this same. But I think the very issue and the problem that's raised by the laws is precisely the dichotomy of 
right? And so trying to come up with some sort of way, could we actually have a divine law in a state here? How would we do that? It would have to be rationally constructed. So, so you're absolutely right. And so I agree, I was very utilitarian in my approach to the Greco-Roman materials of simply to say, here are ways people thought and talked about divine and human law that were available to Jewish thinkers. Which did they pick up on? Which did they suppress? And, and again, the biblical material is, is nuanced and doesn't do Someone asked about reason. The rabbis using sabara and reason. Again, when, when I say that the Torah is inherently rational, it doesn't that's mean that they don't like Yeah, that's what it was. It doesn't mean that they don't like reason, for goodness sakes. Reason is highly, highly valued. So is the divine will. So is the covenant connection between the community. Again, all of these things are tools towards working towards something that would be a, a, a livable law. So it's not to say, when I say that it's divorced from rationality, what I mean is it is not necessarily an inherently rational in its character. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't use reason, of course, to try to figure out what the best law might be. I'd like to thank you, uh, Chair's uh, uh, prerogative. Um, first, maybe some of even though the rabbis say God redeemed Israel so they should be slaves, the rabbis asked if the rule was anything but slavish. Um, but I just sort of, I was many points, but just one struck by your last point about maybe the victories of the, uh, the Sadducees uh, won. Um, what sort of struck me is the last, your last example of Midrash Exodus Rabbah, where Moses says, I'm going to absolve you of that because it says in Numbers 30 that, because it doesn't say that at all, that, that anyone else can absolve it. It says you cannot violate it, but then the rabbis say, but others can. But actually, the mission of those says, which actually may be a debate, they, the mission says, Heter Midarim, the uh, power to absolve Rabbah. Vows is floating, is floating in the air. So at least in the view of the mission, that is, no there is no biblical basis. And then, I mean, this is what, another example, which is an interesting example. Just checking it on my app, my app, which has a little rabbinic literature uh, <laughs> here. So it's very nice. Um, so I just, I, what should be? I wasn't, you know, should be. I was checking my email. I try to find <laughs> Midrash Rabbah. In Midrash Rabbah, the four species is a famous statement by Yikra Rabbah, which says. How in the hell do we know that creates Hadar, the, the fruit of the goodly tree, is etrog or kapotik uh, hadas? And we only know because the rabbis say it, seeming, again, to uh, deny it in exegetical basis. So it seems that there are actually two Every text different, has a different views so in terms of. You would counter all of those with the entire Torah, including Mishnah, Midrash, Talmud, and the question the student will ask tomorrow in the school. We're all given already to Moses the Sinai, right? So we have a whole set of traditions that pack everything back to that moment of revelation at Sinai, and then the shadow texts. For those are precisely the ones, Mishnah Chagiga, 1.8, and other texts that admit there are large sections of this law that have absolutely no biblical basis whatsoever. Right? Yeah. But, but, the, but the story uh, that the texts often tell is that it's all grounded underlying the divine story. Okay, I think we'd have to close it close to their very rich Thank book. You so much. <laughs>